Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Lehner. We're starting our next mini-series on megatrends, the long-term forces shaping our future. We've had our eye on five megatrends in particular over the past few years, and we believe that they'll be playing out for decades to come. That's Jeff Spiegel, BlackRock's U.S. head of megatrends and international ETFs. Those megatrends are demographics, technological breakthroughs, climate change, rapid urbanization, and emerging global wealth. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began a year ago, demographics and social change has been particularly front and center, specifically because of innovations in genomics and immunology. A year ago, no one would have imagined that a COVID vaccine would be available in nine months. Genomics made that possible through the world's first mRNA vaccines. The innovation of the mRNA vaccine is a game changer for fighting countless diseases beyond COVID. These and more innovations, such as truly personalized medicine mapped to an individual's DNA and immunotherapy breakthroughs fighting cancer are trends that both as human beings and as investors, we should pay close attention to for the opportunities they present today and will continue to present for many years to come. As Jeff mentioned, the COVID-19 pandemic has put genomics and immunology front and center. So today we're deep diving on this mega trend with two companies who've been on the front lines, Moderna and CRISPR Therapeutics. First, I talked with Moderna CEO Stefan Bonsell on how Moderna innovated to produce a COVID-19 vaccine in record time. And then I talked with CRISPR Therapeutics CEO Dr. Samarth Polkarni on how the medical breakthroughs involved in fighting the pandemic will impact our approach to other crises in years to come. Thanks so much for joining us, Stefan. Thank you for having me. So Moderna, the company where you were CEO, has become a household name thanks to your innovation and leadership in the COVID-19 vaccine. But many people might not know much about the company itself. Before we dive in, can you just share a little bit, who is Moderna? So it's a company in Cambridge, a block away in front of MIT, that has been for now 10 years trying to invent a totally new technology to make medicines in your body. It sounds simple. Um, for a long time, you all were really secretive. You raised tons and tons of capital, and it wasn't well known to the world what you were doing, what you were innovating on. Why that approach, and what was the impact of that? Yeah, so I had the chance to work in a large pharmaceutical company, and if you think about the pharmaceutical industry, we are using basically two technologies to make medicines you guys and your families are taking when they need it. One is small molecule, small chemicals. It's a 150-year-old pharmaceutical technology like, you know, Lipitor and Prozac and Viagra, some of the brands, you know, that I've made with that technology. The other technology that has been used is what is called recombinant technology, making proteins like for insulin or growth hormone or some cancer treatment like Ketutra, which is maybe 50 years old now. And so when we started the company, there was some new scientific insights using genomics information to basically use a molecule called messenger RNA that now everybody knows that basically is a piece of code. So in each of your cells, you have thousands of messenger RNA at every moment. And you have no trillions of cells in your body. So you have a lot of mRNA in you right now. And those molecules, what do they do in your body? They carry instructions on how to make protein inside your cells. And so what we worked very hard the last 10 years is to figure out how to make that mRNA in our factory in a very high purity manner and how to apply it to get it into the right cells in your body to make whatever protein we need to either cure you 
or in the case of vaccines, to protect you. And it's a powerful mission. And uh, along the way, you raised a lot of capital, but the results didn't always come immediately, it sounds like. So what was it that allowed you to get investors' trust and confidence as this journey kept continuing? So we spent a lot of time over the years to cultivate long-term investors. We were very clear that we could not build this company you know, in two weeks or in a couple of quarters, that we had to invent all the science that was very disruptive science, that we had to build the manufacturing infrastructure right because it's a regulated business. And because those products are injected in people's body, you have to be very, very careful. There's very high responsibility to do things right. And then if you want, people understood that this could not be a one-drug company. You know, most biotech companies, because they use analog old technology, they go one drug at a time and they have one drug and maybe if they succeed, they maybe one day have another drug. They don't know. But in our case, because mRNA is like code, and the raw material that we use is genomics information that exists in nature. If you think about it, we have two sources of genomics information that we use to make our products. I have a sequence of the genomics information of a virus, like in the case of COVID. We take that instruction, we literally copy and paste it with a mouse on the computer, and we drop it into a cassette where we already made vaccine before, and et voila, you have a new vaccine. Literally, it took us 48 hours, where usually it will take years in the labs to develop drugs before you can take it to a clinical trial. And the other source of raw genetic information that we use is the human genome. The human genome has been sequenced. It's actually available online. It's free. And we can use that as instructions to code into mRNA based on different diseases we're trying to go and cure in your body. And so what were some of the breakthroughs that allowed that to happen? What allowed this to take place? You could design a vaccine in a matter of hours, days, that was different than five years ago, even a year ago. So a few things. First, we had to figure out how to make mRNA that will not get you sick. Uh, If you think about it, viruses like COVID are made of mRNA virus, same as the flu. So through evolution, our body has developed a lot of tools, like sensors, if you want to think about it in your body, to find foreign mRNA. So by definition, when you inject an mRNA in your body that we make in our factory, it's foreign to your body. You did not make it. And so we had to figure out a lot of tricks on how do you make a very pure and design an mRNA that will not basically trigger those sensors of your body. That was a big technical challenge. The second technical challenge was how do you get the mRNA into the right cells? And then you had typical challenge like manufacturing and how do you make high quality product and the other things we did at Moderna, because mRNA's code is, we invested a lot in digital. We have a very digitalized company where all the systems are integrated. We have a lot of robotics as well, which is why when we design a vaccine, like the COVID-19 vaccine, literally our teams design it on a computer. So we designed in those 48 hours the first vaccine last year, but we never had access to a physical virus in our labs. Wow. Just information. Literally, you could have sent us an email with the genomics instruction of the virus. We happened to download it from the posting that was done by the Chinese government of the sequence of a virus. And we worked on computers when the team agreed that this was what they believe the best vaccine they could do at the time what they knew. They then literally clicked order like you'll do on an Amazon store when you buy something. <laughs> it went electronically to a factory, which is 10 miles south of Boston. And the robots started making the product right away. Usually it will take you, you know, months and months to make products. Well, 42 days after, we shipped the first clinical product to Dr. Fauci's team for them to start the phase one. It was reported in the media last year on March 16. 
And we just actually sent to them again a new product for the variant for the virus first identified in South Africa, which is of concern for down the road. Right. And that time we made it in 30 days. You make it sound so easy. You make it sound like you were so ready for this time. But what were the hardest parts? What were the biggest challenges in delivering on this? So if you look and go back in time in January of 2020, when we started chasing this virus, Moderna had never run a phase three study. Moderna had never launched a product and got a product approved. Moderna had never made a lot of products. In 2019, we made around 100,000 doses for the entire year. Last week, we shipped to the U.S. government 10 million doses as a weekly shipment. So what the team had to realize last year, and we got help from a lot of partners, is how do we do a clinical development in a year where usually you know, it will take you five, six, seven years. If you remember the world record before of getting a vaccine approved was four years, but most of them is eight to 12 years if you look at the data. And then as we were running this product into the clinic that was you know, massively reported in the media, what you guys didn't see is on the manufacturing front, we did an incredible scale-up. We actually raised $1.3 billion in the market in the follow-on financing on May 18 last year, where 100% of the proceeds went to invest in manufacturing scale-up, buying machine, buying raw material, because a lot of suppliers, given the 10,000x increase in the material we were asking them for, that if the product was going to fail in the clinic, they will go under. So they will ask us to pay upfront the entire order. We had to hire hundreds and hundreds of people to train them to make products. So it was an incredible industrialization that usually would have taken three to four years to happen that the team knew they had less than a year to make happen. It's just remarkable. A lot's been discussed about the collaboration between different companies and sort of dialogue between the government and companies during the pandemic. To what extent did that influence your ability to deliver the vaccine? And what of that do you think might stick around? Yeah, it's a great question. As I've said many times, I've been in this business for 20 years. I have never seen something like we've seen last year in terms of collaboration. First, with the regulatory agencies, the team at the FDA was amazing. Very quick dialogue, problem-solving mindset, working seven days a week, sometimes crazy hours early in the morning or late in the evening. Monsef Slawi, you know, we used to run Operation Vast Speed with the previous administration. He and I used to catch up at four in the morning because we were both early risers. And one day, if I need something, I will text him at four, say, are you up? And literally within 30 seconds, I will have a phone call from Monsef or vice versa. And so incredible collaboration. The government played a critical role. And I really think Operation Vast Speed was an incredible success because they said, we need to remove capital as a reason to waste anything. We need vaccines for the U.S. population. And the way they said it, say, we're going to build a portfolio of three technologies. You know, the protein technology that has many approved vaccines, including flu vaccine, but that is slower. So it was higher risk of working, but much slower technology. The adenovirus technology used by J&J and AstraZeneca and the mRNA technology, which had never had the product approved under the sun. So it was very risky. But on paper and through the vaccine, like Moderna had done before, because we had done nine vaccines before starting the COVID-19 vaccine development, we had shown we could go very, very fast. And then they bet on two companies per those three technology to reduce the execution risk of a company. So it was very, we stock, you know, you build a portfolio. If you knew which stock will go 100x in the next two years, we only buy one stock with all your assets. Of course, nobody does that because nobody knows before. So it's the same thing. So I think it was a very thoughtful approach. And then they gave each company 
in different setups, either they paid for clinical trials and they paid a lower price for doses. But basically, if you look at all the contracts, the punchline is each company got around $2 billion saying, develop a drug and get me 100 million doses for those $2 billion. And you've seen the results. Really incredible. Totally. Very clear instructions, but a lot of uncertainty, obviously. And there were some regulatory changes in advance of this the last administration had made. What sort of regulations or regulatory changes do you think should persist? And what other ones might need to be made to allow this kind of innovation to continue? Yeah, so one of the things that was done is to give guidance of what was required to get emergency use authorization. Hmm. The piece that's important to understand for people is that usually products, especially vaccine, because they're given to healthy people, not to sick people, you go for a full approval. But one of the conditions of an approval is you need 6 to 12 months of safety data before you can even file the file, and the file will take 6 to 12 months to get reviewed. And so what we had to invent with the agency is how do you get an emergency use authorization? So it's a special authorization that the agency can revoke anytime they want, if they believe is the right thing to do based on the data. And that, of course, is not going to stay because vaccine needs to be fully reviewed given they are given to healthy people. So this is a part of a regulation that will not be used in the future, but in an outbreak or in the pandemic. But a lot of processes and a lot of understanding of the platform, like Moderna's platform, will be helpful because... If you think about it, by the end of this year, even when we're going to make around a billion doses and you need, you know, two doses per person, we're going to have a safety database of around 500 million people. Yeah. That is quite incredible. Most medicines do not have such a size of a safety database that can be applied to other vaccine because mRNA is a platform. And so those will help a lot for future products. So speaking of future products, what's next for Moderna after this? And when do you even start thinking about that, given that we're still really in the midst of managing this pandemic? So Moderna, a bit like you do with stock and portfolio building, because we believe that technology could work and change medicine forever, we said we cannot bet on one drug and go pray every morning that we were right. We need to diversify the portfolio of the drugs of Moderna so that we don't rely on only one drug. Because there's, of course, technology risk around the mRNA technology. It was never been approved before. And also biology risk, which is how well do you understand disease? So before the COVID vaccine started to keep us a bit busy, <laughs> we had already 20 drugs in development. I'm not talking about in the labs. I'm talking in development across infectious disease, of course, but also cardiology, oncology, rare genetic disease, and autoimmune disease. So we had a very large portfolio. And one of the things we did last year to not slow down this portfolio, which is really important because those disease products we were developing before, people are still being hurt by those diseases. And so what we said last year when it was very clear to us around the end of January that this was going to be a pandemic like the 1918 flu pandemic. So what basically I did, I basically split the leadership team of a company. Some members focused on keeping the current portfolio moving forward so that we'll not waste time to patients that are waiting for those important cancer drugs or cardiac drugs. Mm -hmm. And then the team fully dedicated to COVID so that COVID could move at the speed of light. And that's basically how we played the trick. We, of course, hired a lot of people under those leaders to give them the capability and the capacity to be able to execute and to deliver. But basically, I had one executive committee member, our chief medical officer, I told him, Tal, this year, you can do only one thing. I need you to have dream and nightmare about one thing is COVID-19. Yeah. 
Well, mRNA, you're not the only company using this. So what do you think is the future for it more broadly? Do you think we'll see others innovating in this area? And what do you think lies ahead? Yeah, so I've always thought, and this is just confirmed with the authorization of those products, that mRNA is going to disrupt the pharmaceutical industry in a gigantic way. Because for the first time in the history of pharmaceutical industry, you are moving from an analog world, like small molecule, to a digital world, because mRNA is code. And so think about what has done digitalization of industries. Like early in my career, you know, when we were the first child, we used to go rent a DVD at Blockbuster for the weekend. Right. Well, we don't do that anymore. You know, we get my iPad on my lap and you click on a button and you download from the App Store the movie you want. This is the type of disruption we're talking about here, which is, I would even predict that some pharmaceutical company, five, ten years out, because we're in a long cycle industry with patents and so on, are going to be in a very different shape and form than what they are today because they're going to be totally disrupted. I mean, think about flu. We are going after a flu vaccine right now. I will predict that this vaccine will be 90 plus percent efficacy. The current vaccine that you might get when you get your annual flu shot are 60% efficacy in a good year, down to 30% efficacy in a bad year. Plus, we can combine different mRNAs in a single dose. So our vision is to have you get every year, if you want it, of course, a seasonal flu vaccine with very high efficacy from Moderna, and in the same dose, a boost of also the COVID variant. And then we're going to add more things and more things because we already have vaccines that have six mRNA in the same vial. And so we're going to go after viruses that don't exist. We're going to go after businesses that exist that we're just going to combine, make it better for the consumer in terms of efficacy of a product and the convenience of not needing five shots but getting one shot. Nobody likes needles too much. And so we're going to go and invent a lot of things but also disrupt a lot of things. So I'm curious how you think incumbents are going to handle that, but you keep mentioning one shot, and a lot has been discussed about the two-shot vaccine versus the one-shot vaccine. So does that mean a one-shot vaccine is on the horizon? So not for today. What is really unknown today on both the two-shot vaccines and the one-shot vaccine is duration. Right. What we should not forget and be careful about is all the vaccines, including ours, have an efficacy data readout if you think about it, a couple months after you get injected. We have no clinical data yet of how protected are you with a one-dose vaccine or a two-dose vaccine a year after, two years after. I would predict, but I have no clinical data, that is just my current belief, that vaccines that have two doses will have longer-lasting effect than vaccines that have one dose because when you hit your immune system a second time with the instruction of a virus again, what you tend to see in vaccinology is not only a higher production of antibody, but also a longer duration. We have seen it with over mRNA vaccines that we have clinical data across more than a year. But if I had to predict what will happen, I don't think we will go into a world where we'll get a one-shot mRNA vaccine for COVID. But what I predict is you'll go into a world where you get one-shot boost if you got a vaccine before with the right variant so that you don't become sick as the virus keeps evolving, like we flu. If you think about it, we are used to variants with flu. Every year you have new flu strain, which is it. It's a natural evolution and mutation of the virus. That makes a lot of sense. It's the natural trade-offs. Just two last questions. One is, you talk about disrupting pharmaceuticals in the spirit of duration. What do you think is the duration of some of these pharmaceutical companies that don't have this approach? And how do you think they're going to adapt and will they be able to be more nimble than incumbents in other industries who've been digitized? 
Yeah, so I think what is hard in pharmaceutical today, and again, I know that industry well for having worked in there, is as has been massively documented by analysts and consulting firms, the return on R&D investment is pretty bad. Yeah. Most drugs, as we all know, fail. I think this is one of the biggest disruptions that mRNA is going to bring, is the strike rate of molecules is going to go through the roof. Because again, if you go back to it, between our flu vaccine and our COVID vaccine, we use 100% the same chemicals. Most drugs fail in the clinic because of toxicity. But if I'm giving your body exactly the same chemicals, which, by the way, for the four letters that are coding the mRNA message, the instruction, it's the letters that already exist in your own cells. So those chemicals are not foreign to you. Think about those famous molecules that have been amazing for patients, you know, a Lipitor, a Prozac. Those are molecules that don't exist in nature. So think about all the molecules that go into the clinic that have never seen the human body before, and the human body is a very complex machine. So if it just binds to something they're not supposed to bind to, they might give you side effects. And so I think people are not realizing that the attrition rate of industry is going to be transformed with this technology. And so when you think about it from a multi-year perspective, if I invest a billion dollars, but most of the drugs I invest in get to market, I'm going to generate so much sales to allow me to reinvest into more products. So you kind of almost have exponential growth of your R&D money as your sales top line increases. But if 90% of the thing you invest in, which is around the pharmaceutical strike rate, go into the Charles River where you get zero return for your capital, it's going to be hard over time to compete because of laws of compounding. So with that multi-year perspective, last question, what are you most excited about an innovation in therapeutics in the next 20 years? What do you hope we'll see? So I think we're going to be able to get in a place with cancer where cancer is a disease that we are not afraid of anymore, that when you get a diagnostic from cancer, there will be solutions to either keep you with no disease or to fully cure you. I mean, look already today, the checkpoint inhibitors, when they work on you, you go into complete remission. So I tell my friends, uh, stay healthy for another 10 years because I really think that we're going to get to a place where many of us are going to have many cancers over our lifetime and we'll be able to have a healthy life to live normally. And that will be just a wonderful impact to human beings. It's a really exciting future. And thank you for all that you and Moderna have done for the world this year. Thank you for this time. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having us today. We're really happy. And please, everybody, stay safe. That was Stefan Bansel, CEO of Moderna. Next, let's turn to Dr. Samarth Pulkarni, CEO of CRISPR Therapeutics. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So many people have heard of CRISPR, but they might not know the impact of such technology. So can you just walk us through the history of this kind of gene editing technology? Sure. CRISPR Therapeutics is a gene editing company focused on a mission of developing transformative medicines for many serious diseases like sickle cell disease or beta thalassemia using a breakthrough technology that goes by the same name of CRISPR. I'll talk more about the technology CRISPR, but in a very short amount of time, we've taken this powerful technology and shown remarkable benefits in our clinical trials. Last year, we showed that 10 of 10 patients treated, and these are patients suffering from sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia, showed a remarkable improvement in symptoms uh, in fact, nearly a disappearance of all the symptoms after being treated with the gene editing medicine that we created called CTX001. So there's a lot of potential with this technology, and there's a lot more to come over the next few years 
with the technology itself. And so can you share a little bit of just what makes CRISPR different from other therapeutics, for example? Yeah, let me tell you about the platform itself. CRISPR was identified in bacteria, and it's a very curious thing. And it was found that bacteria have a mechanism that they've evolved over millions of years to protect themselves from viruses. They developed a tiny molecular scissor that has a barcode attached to it that can cut and inactivate a virus in a specific location on its genome. This technology was then adapted to say, how can we change the human genome at a specific location using these tiny molecular scissors? And that's the invention. That's CRISPR. And so our company has taken this platform to say, let's identify diseases which are caused by mutations in genomes, caused by any sort of changes in the genetics. And using this molecular scissor, we can either correct the mutation or the defect or make a change in the genome to get the desired effect in terms of disease. And this paradigm is very different from before. We're not trying to just treat symptoms. We're trying to fundamentally cure diseases at its basic level. And that's a very powerful concept that can be used to address thousands of diseases. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to CRISPR? I immigrated to the United States for my PhD with the firm goal of becoming an academic researcher. But along the way, I got very interested in startups and biotechs, which led me to McKinsey, where I was a partner for 10 years and led all our efforts in helping biotechs develop and grow. That gave me a network of people in the biotech space. And when CRISPR was being formed, I got to talk to those folks who were starting to form the company. And for me, this was probably one of the most exciting ideas I've ever heard. My belief is, if you look at the last 120 years, every 40 years or so, there have been a major discontinuity in biomedical research that's led to many different drugs and many life-saving medicines. The last one we saw was antibodies in the early 80s. And after that, I think CRISPR has the same potential, and we're seeing it play out in this decade and the next. So how has CRISPR's technology been used in fighting the COVID-19 pandemic? CRISPR has many uses in fighting viruses. In fact, the CRISPR technology itself was elucidated in bacteria, and bacteria developed the CRISPR technology to save themselves from viral attack by creating molecular scissors that can cut and inactivate viruses. So at a very basic level, CRISPR can be used to inactivate viruses. But in this pandemic for COVID-19, the primary uses have come in diagnostics, where a CRISPR-based diagnostic has been used for rapid detection of COVID-19, and in drug development, where therapies have been developed against COVID-19 or vaccines, but the CRISPR tools have been used to ensure that we're developing these vaccines and therapies against the right sequence of the virus, against the mutations that are happening in this virus, so that we're prepared for all forms of these viruses. So this is a year where vaccines obviously were in the headlines more than ever. Is there anything about 2020 and the race to a vaccine that you think is not well understood, given that you were on the front lines of it, you'd like to share? I think before going to what's not well understood, I think what's underappreciated has been the pace at which biopharma has developed new vaccines. We were in a realm where it took four to five years to develop a vaccine. And in the face of this pandemic, the companies have risen to the challenge and we've developed a vaccine in the space of months. This is truly incredible 
to have vaccines with this level of efficacy developed in such a short period of time. And frankly, that's what's going to get us back to normalcy, hopefully over the next six to nine months. I think there are many other challenges that were exposed in the face of this pandemic, such as the ability to control society in terms of spread of the disease or spread of the infection, the ability to distribute life-saving vaccines and everything else. And we're going to learn from this example or this pandemic and be prepared for future challenges. But I think the changes in terms of the speed of innovation uh, for vaccines and therapeutics are here to stay. Would you have expected that speed of innovation coming into 2020 and COVID-19? Well, one of the things that's changed in biomedical research today is the advent of many new platforms, CRISPR being one of them. Another one that's powerful is mRNA technologies. And there are many other technology platforms that utilize viruses. And all of these are converging at the same time and have changed the nature of biomedical research. What used to be based on a large stochastic experiment and serendipity to identify a drug that works is now much more of an engineering problem. So we can use these platforms and say, this is the change we want to make, or this is the sequence we want to affect in the human body, and we can come up with the medicine in a short amount of time. I think that is a completely new paradigm of drug development and discovery, which is why there's been so much excitement about it in the biotechnology space. But I'm not completely surprised because I think we recognize the power of these new platforms. Now, would I have predicted that we would have a vaccine in six to eight months? Probably not. But would it be faster than the typical three to four years? That I was 100% certain of. You mentioned how we learned a lot about how to control society, how to distribute the vaccine. What do you think are some of the changes that we would need to implement to make the execution implementation more effective if we were to have a crisis like this again? Certainly, I think the establishment of some of these platforms for vaccines like mRNA or advanced viruses are things that are going to stay with us. I think the fact that we've gone through one pandemic and established these platforms will be immensely helpful the next time around when we have to deal with a certain pathogen, because then the sequence is different, the pathogen is different, but the modality we use is the same, and we've done it once before. And it's a very welcome advance because there have been people talking about pandemics after the Ebola crisis and how we may see one or the other. And I think our preparedness has dramatically increased. Beyond that, I think the pandemic has really changed how we think about the industry and the industry operations. We were able to recruit patients into our clinical trials all the way in Australia through a virtual model. We were able to train physicians to treat patients with our drug in the Middle East via Zoom. And I think our regulatory interactions have become more efficient because we don't have to wait for in-person meetings with the FDA or European regulators. And all those efficiencies will play a big factor into how we do drug discovery and platform development in the future. And I think those are here to stay. So it's estimated that about 50,000 diseases come from a single gene malfunction. The opportunity you have to make a difference to cure diseases is enormous. How do you begin to prioritize it? You know, our philosophy around all these diseases and these thousands of diseases are caused by mutations, and some of these are deadly diseases. We're working on one disease, for instance, called GSD1A, which afflicts children who have a metabolism defect. And 
if you don't feed these children cornstarch every three to four hours, they have a risk of dying. So think about what the parents go through and what the children go through for a lifetime. And ultimately, they have a shortened lifespan. So these are all diseases that can potentially be cured by an approach like CRISPR. Now, the approach we're taking is let's start with diseases where we have a greater confidence that we can cure them or impact them. And this is based on ability to deliver the CRISPR-Cas9 into the cells or the organs of interest. This is based on the type of genomic modification we need to make. And that's why we picked sickle cell disease. This is one of the first identified genetic diseases, which was identified in the early 20th century. And we know a lot about the disease. And we know what change we need to make in the genome to cure this disease. So we're going to pick diseases based on tractability. And over time, as we learn more, we're going to expand into many more diseases. And by the way, we're not alone. There are going to be other companies as well. They're going to follow our path. And jointly and together, we can hopefully address not just these thousands of rare diseases, but also common diseases like cancer and heart disease. What are you all prioritizing next? You mentioned the war on cancer for 2021. Is it still all about COVID-19 or are you prioritizing your pipeline? Yeah, our prioritization is in phases. I think we took on a set of rare diseases like sickle cell anemia and beta thalassemia, both deadly diseases. Sickle cell is underappreciated. There's 100,000 patients in the U.S. that suffer from sickle cell disease, and they live in constant pain, constant pain and a risk of early death. And I think we have an opportunity here to stamp out this disease using CRISPR-Cas9. We have a number of therapies against cancers, first with blood cancers or heme malignancies, followed by solid tumors like renal cell cancer or lung cancer. And ultimately, the thing I'm most excited about eventually is regenerative medicine. This is the ability to recreate organ systems. We take stem cells and create an artificial pancreas that can be inserted into patients that suffer from type 1 diabetes and potentially type 2 diabetes. This would make the need for insulin go away completely because you now have an artificial organ that's been inserted into your skin. And I think this regen med concept or regenerative medicine ultimately extends beyond that to liver, lung, and many other organ systems. And we're incredibly excited about that investment. It'll take some time to come to fruition, but I think that'll change the way we look at medicine. Regenerative medicine is even hard to get one's head around. It sounds like such a transformative change. As you are working on that and doing research and development, do you all collaborate with any of the other technology platforms? Or is it kind of like a war between the platforms and you're each kind of going after solving the same critical problems in parallel? In our case, I think one plus one equals five. I think we've seen that bringing these platforms together have made a major difference in terms of how fast we can act on these diseases and the technology cycle speed. For instance, with approaches where we target the liver, if you can combine CRISPR with mRNA, that was the basis for all the vaccines in COVID-19, that could be a powerful combination. In other diseases like hemophilia, combining CRISPR with AAVs or gene therapies could be a very powerful combination. So I think we've generally had the notion that bringing these technologies together can be quite powerful, not just in treating diseases, but establishing new horizons by which we can approach medicine. And so given that there's so much opportunity to cure diseases, what are you most excited about in the next three years? 
One of the things I'm most excited about in the next three years is the war against cancer. It was in the 60s that we all sort of declared the modern war against cancer. We said, you know, let's bring every tool we have at our disposal to try and cure some of these deadly cancers, like blood cancers, some of the solid tumors, especially lung cancer. And while we've made progress, it hasn't been dramatic progress. I think two things are happening now. One is the ability to detect these cancers early through the liquid biopsy technique. And there are companies using small amounts of blood to detect cancers early. And the second is CRISPR-engineered cell therapies that are smart drugs that have been taught to go recognize a cancer cell and kill it. Between those two forces, I think we're going to see a dramatic impact on cancer care and essentially, hopefully at some point, cancer cures. And to what extent have technological trends like cloud, big data, advances in data science enabled this kind of innovation that you're talking about? They're starting to make a big difference in the biomedical sector. What I'm most excited about is the combination of big data with artificial intelligence. In our own labs, for instance, we can do massively parallel screening to see which genes can be knocked out or knocked in and what difference they have on the phenotype. And we do this in mice. And what used to take a 100,000 mouse experiment can now be done through parallel screening in a 1,000 mice. And then we use big data techniques to parse through the data with advanced analytics. And then as we learn more, we've established artificial intelligence as a paradigm. We're not quite there with AI, but at least there's a learning algorithm that allows us to identify genes that directly or indirectly impact genes and what combination of genes would cause a difference in the disease. And so these techniques are coming to bear not just in small molecule spectrum, but also with advanced therapies like CRISPR-based cell medicines. So we've been talking a lot about three to five years from now. What about in 20 years from now? What new things do you think CRISPR can make possible then? As I look forward 20 years, I think one of the areas I'm most excited about is anti-aging. I firmly believe that children born today will probably have a life expectancy of 120 years, if not more. I think this notion of regenerative medicine where we can replace any faulty organs that people have, together with advances in biology that help us understand the basis of aging, the two forces will converge and allow us to live a lot longer than we've ever imagined. In fact, it's not out of the question that future generations are going to live to 150 years with the same quality of life that we see at 65 or 70. And you think that's just children being born today or for those of us who are already a little bit older than that? What do you think? It's going to be a continuum. I think one of the things that we don't have for those who are born today, we haven't banked ourselves from when we were born. We haven't banked our umbilical cords. I think that's becoming more commonplace as we go along. So you've banked your young cells, which are pluripotent. In other words, they can form many different cell types. And in the future, if you have these cells banked when you're born and you get older and you need to replace organs, you can just direct these banked cells to create a new organ. And that, I think, could be a way to replace faulty organs or malfunctioning cells. Again, it may sound like the stuff of sci-fi today, but in 20 years, I think this is certainly going to be something that may even be in clinical trials. 
So you mentioned that those who bank cells might be able to live that much longer. First of all, can you explain a little bit what banking cells means in practical terms? But then also, it kind of brings to mind whether that brings with it some inequality, like those who have access to bank cells, either because of the geography of where they live or because their income would be advantaged. How do you think about those kinds of issues? Yeah, the notion of bank cells, and again, you asked me about something that's 20 years out, it's not something that's available today, but, you know, we are all born from single cells and our code of life tells all these cells how to become kidneys or liver or lungs, right? Their fate is directed. And we're all born with these cells called stem cells. And stem cells, they don't have a function yet, but they're pluripotent in the sense that they can become any of these organs of interest. So if you have cells that are stem cells that are banked, then you can, through modern techniques, direct them into forming different organ systems. Now, you may not be able to direct them to form different shaped years, but you can certainly direct them to form pancreas. And whether you can ultimately do that for brains is unknown at this point, but that gives us this notion of extending life by recreating organs. When that happens, there are a lot of questions for society to wrestle with, including inequality, but also whether we as a society can sustain people living for 150 years. So lots to think about on that front, but certainly the possibilities are opening up as we do more research with powerful platforms like CRISPR. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated the genomics and immunology megatrend, changing the way we think about medical advancements moving forward. On our next episode, we'll talk about another megatrend accelerated by the pandemic, climate change and resource scarcity. We'll speak to Salim Ramji, Global Head of iShares and Index Investments for BlackRock, and Chris Ailman, Chief Investment Officer of CalSTRS, the California State Teachers Retirement System, about what they're doing to prepare for a lower carbon economy. We'll see you next time. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N, 2DL, telephone plus 44020, 77433000 77433000 registered in England and Wales number 2020394 
For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.